Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio. That's WPRR Ada Grand Rapids and W237CZ in Hudsonville. That's right, because we got the short end of the stick on call letters, W237CZ. <laughs> uh, my name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. So where's the underwire support in America's Bible bra? <laughs> All right, I'm not even going there. Uh, coming up in the show, we have an interview with Tim Callahan from Skeptic Magazine. Yes, the religion editor of Skeptic Magazine. But first, uh, here's a clip from Ryan Sorba. Ryan Sorba from the Young Americans for Freedom speaking at CPAC, the big conservative conference. Ryan is upset because CPAC actually invited a group of Republican homosexuals to play a role at the CPAC conference. I'd like to condemn CPAC for bringing Go Pride to this event. Bring it, bring it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Guess what? Guess what? All right? Guess what? Civil rights are grounded in natural rights. Natural rights are grounded in human nature. Human nature is a rational substance in relationship. The intelligible end of the reproductive act is reproduction. Do you understand that? Civil rights, when they conflict with natural rights, are contrary now you sit down. The lesbians at Smith College protest better than you do. The lesbians at Smith College protest better than you do. All right? Bring it. Yeah, Yal is my enemy. Jeff Frazee, guess what? You just made an enemy out of me, buddy. Yeah, you. I guess even right-wing conservative frat boys can memorize a few lines of Aquinas. <laughs> you just made the list, pal. It just reminded me of Stripes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just made the list, pal. <laughs> Lighten up, Ryan. Yeah, this is this is about the tenor of a lot of the discussion at uh, CPAC, uh, from what I've gathered. <laughs> Actually, I thought this made CPAC look good in a strange way because they were booing him off the stage. That's right. That's right. But I thought we should bring this up just because of how much that sounded like Robert P. George, who yeah. we talked about earlier on the show. I think to a lot of people hearing that clip, they were going, what? What is he breaking into this mm -hmm. philosophy speak? Uh, but anybody who's listened to episode 61 where we take apart Robert P. George's claims, you know, that natural law thinking is going to be recognizable instantly. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because a lot of the response we got to that episode was people just saying, George's arguments are absolutely ludicrous. Which they are. Which they are. But you can see uh, when you listen to folks like Ryan Sorba here just how prevalent they are. It provides an intellectual veneer for people to justify their more gut instinct revulsion against certain things. We did get several listener comments about that episode. 
In fact, what I thought was interesting is we even had a few people who had taken classes at Princeton with George. Each person seemed very impressed with him as a teacher, with him as an individual mm-hmm. and shocked and horrified to, to hear that he would really back up his beliefs that way with that type of argument um, that he uses to justify his stance on gay marriage. Right. I think there are a lot of people who have a lot of respect for this guy as, a, as an intellectual, just think he, he goes off the rails on this and, and some other issues. Mm-hmm. But we also had another email from a listener. He begins his comment by saying, first, let me tell you that I'm a third-year law student. My best friend is a third-year law student, so I know that whatever is going to follow that sentence is going to make me wince. Um, (laughs) But he says, you're completely wrong in your assertion that Justice Scalia believes in natural law. Uh, or uses it in his opinions. In fact, he argues just the opposite. He believes that in interpreting the Constitution, one should look to the original understanding of the founding generation. This is called originalism. He does not look towards nature. He would be appalled at the assertion. Um, This is obviously a reference to at the end of that episode with Robert P. George, we were trying to reaffirm once again why it's important Mm -hmm. uh, to take on these arguments. And we said you know, he has a lot of influence – in the conservative movement and he has a lot of influence amongst judges in particular. He is a professor of of jurisprudence and um, I mentioned he has Scalia's ear Mm -hmm. was the comment, the exact comment that I made. I think Luke said something about his Catholic background. You can almost guess what his decisions are going to be before they even happen. That was about the extent of what we said of of Scalia. But after this this listener's comment, I looked it up some more and he's absolutely right. There is a debate in some legal circles over whether or not a judge ever has the right to appeal directly to natural law Mm -hmm. in any sort of circumstance. And even though Scalia comes to the same conclusion on many social issues as Robert P. George – Scalia is very much of the mind that natural law justifications don't fly in good legal reasoning. And so I guess we shouldn't be making associations there. But I I do think our more simpler claim that there is influence uh, between the two, I think one could still defend that. But I am thankful to the anonymous listener for sharing that with us. Uh, He was right. And uh, And the broader influence of of Catholicism on the Supreme Court because we have what? Is it five justices now or four? Uh, Whether you consider Sotomayor. Yeah, I was going to say. I think think there's five of them. Thomas, Roberts. Scalia. Alito. Yeah. Kennedy. Yeah, there you go. Thomas is Catholic? Okay. See, we're going to get ourselves in trouble with the Supreme yeah, Court. We're, we're going to have to fact check well, this. We're going to get more lawyers. Uh. <laughs> I must tell you, to cease and desist, reasonable doubts. <laughs> before your, uh, Regardless. You know we have a federal judge who's a big fan of the do, show. We do, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we should probably have him on and just to tell us how often we screw pull- up our legal. There's a bunch of cops <laughs> pulling up in the parking lot. Does somebody uh, – pay, pay no attention. Okay. Uh, so thanks for those uh, emails and, and we always appreciate that though it's frustrating. If we do get something wrong, let us know. Although we're still not wrong about determinism or vegetarianism, although we may Absolutely have to re-examine not. those later. <laughs> Cut to next story. <laughs> All right. Our next story is the coming of Z-Day. Yes, Z-Day. This is the invasion of 
Zanzibar? Yes. Uh, actually, that's the name for when the zombies took over in uh, Shaun of the Dead, that's right? That's right. It they is. commemorated it as Z-Day. You're, you're absolutely right. No, this is a different type of Z-Day, uh, referring to the fans of the internet film Zeitgeist. Or in German, the ghost of the times, as it were. Yeah, uh, yes, thank you. Spirit. Spirit of the times. Yeah. We've had a lot of people asking us about this movie, Zeitgeist. If you don't know what the movie is, um, it's a it's an internet film. It kind of it reminded me a lot of Loose Change, which was the nine yes, eleven yeah. conspiracy theory documentary. In yeah. fact, that factors into a, a whole third of the film. Right. And the religion part reminded me of the God who was the God there. who wasn't there. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it almost sounded like the same music and the same narration yeah. voice. Although and the same I, I graphics and, and the God who wasn't there, which I I actually like quite a bit. It, it has some scholarship issues too. I thought God who wasn't there was a little bit better informed than than. Well, there's Zeitgeist. some overlap too with the mythological things. Yeah. yeah. And boy, does this guy reach. He's really stretching it. And, and we should point out that the film is broken up into three sections. The first part is about Jesus. The second part is about 9-11. And the third part is about the, what the international banking yeah. system and the, the, the Federal Reserve Bank. Right. And yeah, which I didn't watch because uh, you know I listen to Sound Money if I care about financial stuff. I, I refuse to watch the portion on 9-11 because clearly this was a conspiracy, 9-11. And it was a conspiracy pulled off by the 19 hijackers and other folks in the Taliban. Yeah, the, the 9 11 stuff has been thoroughly yeah. debunked. We don't need to spend time uh, on that uh, here. Yeah. But it points out what kind of guy Peter Joseph is. He's looking for conspiracies. Basically, Zeitgeist is, is one big conspiracy theory that looks at Christian. It begins with Christian origins. Mm -hmm. I guess if you wanted to sum up the film in about two sentences, it would be. At least the religion portion is that Christianity was a Roman plot to control civilization, that Jesus was originally a mythical figure and understood to be so, mm -hmm. just an astrological analogy. So all the attributes of Christ are really metaphors for the zodiac or astrological phenomena in some sort of way. And at the time of the Council of Nicaea, Christianity turned him into a historical figure rather than a mythical one. Right. And this was uh, uh, for some sort of agenda of social control. I, I think Tim Callahan in his article in Skeptic Magazine uh, entitled The Greatest Story Ever Garbled says it perfectly at the end of the article. He says, Zeitgeist is the Da Vinci Code on steroids. Exactly. I was thinking that too. That really gets straight to the reason why I wanted to talk about this this film. After all this time, we've ignored emails, right. requests coming in to talk about it. I, I kind of just thought this would go away, but it still has a major following. And you know, this is something that happens way too often, and that is people are they are skeptical of religion. Right. They are willing to challenge claims about Christian origins, but they do it in a academically irresponsible way and even pretty notable publications. National Geographic had that whole thing with the, the Gospel of Judas a right. couple of years ago, oh, yeah, sure. which they completely blew out of proportion. And then who was it? What who did you the, could imply. The, the Jesus tomb? I know yeah, it was James, James, Cameron. James Cameron. The ossuary box. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, James Cameron was claiming that he found the box that has Jesus' remains and made a huge documentary. The whole thing was a forgery. 
Um, Meanwhile, he had already been working on Avatar for 10 years before <laughs> – actually, before the tomb was created. Now that actually. still exists, right? Don't – yeah, uh, uh, actually, not really. <laughs> the Pandora box. Both travesties, but one with really good special effects. That's right. The thing is, when this happens, we give the Christian apologists all the ammunition they need. Absolutely. This really reinforces their caricature of skeptics, that they have to really reach and distort the facts to challenge Christian origins which is not the case. There's a lot of good scholarship mm-hmm. that really picks apart the biblical narrative's right. view of Jesus. But what's amazing is just how popular this uh, – It's huge. Y- yeah. Peter Joseph and the Zeitgeist film, they have – as we mentioned, they have Z-Day coming up. Mm-hmm. This is on March 13th. So it's in just – another Yeah, just another week. Which is close to the, the equinox. <laughs> and as we know, the equinox <laughs> – it is the yeah. date of Easter is assigned to the first. Um, they, they're they're planning their big event on March thirteenth, and at last year's Z Day, they claimed that they had four hundred and fifty events worldwide in seventy countries across the globe. They claim that fifty million people have watched the movie. Yeah, and that was as of last year. And I, I'm not so sure I trust those numbers, partially because the YouTube count wasn't anywhere close to that. No. But I, we were talking in the hundreds of thousands, sure. and that's impressive in and of itself. But uh, but fifty million—that was a far cry. Right. And also, I looked into some of their chapters around the globe that mm-hmm. they say they have for the Z movement. There's one in West Michigan, is there not? There is, but it meets on the internet. Ooh, well, you know what? It's so, really tough to get people to come together on the internet to discuss conspiracy theories. So clearly, <laughs> someone's doing something right. And that the, the Vatican City chapter, I'm a little skeptical about that. <laughs> We're not supposed to know about the. Vatican what are you doing, City Cardinal? Chapter. Oh, spreadsheets. <laughs> so we want to talk about what what he actually says in this movie because I'm fairly incensed by by an awful lot of it. All right, Peter Joseph at the very end of the religion segment of Zeitgeist mm-hmm. says the following. He says, the, uh, there are very high odds that the figure known as Jesus did not even exist. The reality is Jesus was a solar deity of the Gnostic sect, and like all other pagan gods, he was a mythical figure. It was the political establishment that sought to historize the Jesus figure for social control. By 325 AD in Rome, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea, it was during this meeting that the politically motivated Christian doctrines were established and thus began a long history of Christian bloodshed and spiritual fraud. Now, for me, this passage really is, is almost in a nutshell what's wrong about Zeitgeist. Right. In a certain way, if you squint, if you squint your eyes, tilt your head a little bit, yeah, the that kind of matches the picture. In in other words, of course, there was a lot of mythology that went into oh, sure. the story about Jesus. Not all of this is what the historical Jesus actually did. If there yes, was one. Some people do raise legitimate doubts as to whether or not such a person ever existed. I happen to believe there's good evidence to think he did, but there's there's good criticisms of that. I, I'm not compelled either way. I, I, I think it's entirely possible that there wasn't, and it's possible that there was, and frankly, we'll never know. And some scholars say that, like Robert Price. Yeah, exactly. He talks about the, the stained glass curtain, where it's so – if there is a truth, it's so veiled that we'll right. never know. But Joseph has taken this so far out of context as to give a very different impression from what the true situation really is. First of all, 
He says Jesus was the solar deity of the Gnostic Christian sect. He's, it, it almost sounds like he's saying nothing, no Christianity existed other than Gnostic Christianity before the Council of Nicaea. Right. And this is just – this is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. You had Jewish Christian adoptionists who believed Jesus was, was essentially a, a man just a man. You had the Marcionites who believed he was he was a god and not a man. You had the proto-Orthodox who believed something like modern Christians do too, that he was divine and a man at the same time. And you had these Gnostics, you had these mystery cults around the time. They all had different views of Jesus. It wasn't as if only at this time, people started thinking he was a historical figure and not a, a mythical figure. Right. So he oversimplifies that. Uh, and the idea that Constantine did this for political control, again, there's there's a little bit of truth to that. Of course, the Christianizing of the Roman Empire, certain aspects of that were calculated for political gain. I'm not going to doubt that that's true. But is there good reason to doubt that Constantine wasn't legitimately converted and when they had the Council of Nicaea, it was to try to consolidate doctrines. Constantine did not make Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. He issued the Edict of Toleration, which ended the official persecution of Christians. It's Constantine's successor, Emperor Theodosius, in 391, declares Christianity to be the official religion. But that doesn't mean that decades earlier during the Council of Nicaea that this was this was already hatching as a political plot to take over the Roman civilization. He gives you a little bit of information and then a whole lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that seems to be the pattern that he follows throughout the entire movie. Except when he just outright makes stuff up. Well, yeah, and that certainly seemed to be the case too, like all these uh, mythical parallels with other gods. Right, and, and this is the stuff that gets gets my hackles up because I teach mythology and I rather enjoy it. In the film, Joseph makes the claim that the Egyptian god Horus, falcon-headed god of the sky, he says that Horus was born on December 25th of the virgin Isis um, his birth was accompanied by a star in the east. Three kings came to locate him. Um, at the age of 12, he was a prodigal uh, child teacher. At the age of 30, he was baptized by a figure known as Anup, began his ministry, had 12 disciples, performed miracles, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you get the point. Look, yeah. this is all the same stuff that Jesus did. So Which, The similarities are absolutely striking, except that he made up almost all of them. The idea that Horus had 12 disciples, I can find no reference to that whatsoever, even on the interwebs, uh, except people who are citing zeitgeist. Now, to be fair, with all mythologies, there are multiple versions of the stories. Egypt has a number of different creation stories, most of them conflicting with each other. Okay, There are a number of different versions of Horus, some of which he's the son – most notably, he's the son of Osiris and Isis – who is not a virgin, in that she had sex with her husband, uh, and her husband's corpse, actually. This is a whole different story. <laughs> yeah. um, somewhere he's the son of Hathor, somewhere he's the husband of Hathor. Somewhere he's the son of Isis, but suckles on Hathor, who's a cow goddess. So there are different versions, and it's possible that there's a version out there that fits this version that Joseph describes – but I can't find yeah, it. Yeah, Tim Callahan made a pretty convincing case in his article that what you do to get these lists, 
mm-hmm. like he brings up for these different gods, right. is you have to take several different mythologies like Isis and Osiris yes. and you have to meld aspects of each one of their stories and you have to throw yes. in some other stuff. He's pulling to, stuff from Osiris and attributing it to Horus. Yeah, and, he's inflating his list quite a bit. And some of it is just made up. It's absolutely inaccurate. Now, he may have been getting it from somewhere, but he wasn't getting it from ancient Egypt. I'll tell you that. And of course, a lot of modern Christianity is tied to other pagan religions, which was often done very consciously. Christmas, for example, wasn't celebrated for the first few centuries um, that the Christian church was around. But then they linked it to Saturnalia, the birth of Mithra, all, all of these things that happen on or around the winter solstice as a conscious way of saying you've got a festival going on here. You have presents and celebrating the birth of your god. Well, you know what? We just change it Mm -hmm. a little bit. That's just good missionary work. Yeah. The associations are so vague to begin with. Uh, That's – my major issue was you can explain a lot of these origins better for for Christian beliefs if you look at the Jewish tradition. Yes. Um, Let me give you an example of this. He makes the case that the Hebrew Bible and early Christianity, they are astrological allegory. Mm -hmm. He calls them astrological allegories, basically signifying different ages of the zodiac. And uh, and he gets this from the idea of the the procession of the equinoxes. Mm Uh, Well, I'll just read his description. The ancient Egyptians along with cultures long before them recognized that approximately every 2,150 years – The sunrise on the morning of the spring equinox would occur at a different sign of the zodiac. Uh, And this has to do with the slow angular wobble that the earth maintains as it rotates on its axis. The different ages in the Bible then correspond to these ages of the zodiac. Mm -hmm. So he says, in the Old Testament, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, he's very upset to see people worshiping a golden bull calf. Well, is this because they were worshiping an idol? They were erecting a false image? No, no, no. No. (laughs) Oh, no, of course not. No, not at all. The reality, he says, is that the golden bull is Taurus the bull, and Moses represents the new age of Ares the ram. This is why Jews, even today, blow the ram's horn, which is complete bullshit. (laughs) That this is the reason for it. Moses represents the new age of Aries, and upon the new age, everyone must shed the old age. Why is he so pissed off at the bull? Not not because it's Baal. Yeah, it's the old age's iconography. If he had cracked open the Bible and bothered to read it, he would realize how ridiculous this is. Well, it's allegory. They wouldn't say it right out. (laughs) Well, first of all, if you look at the construction of the temple, there's bull imagery all over the place. Mm Mm-hmm. The Molten Sea is, rests on statues of bulls. Mm-hmm. There's bull images in uh, prophetic visions of Isaiah. And really, if you trace this back, we know in the Canaanite pantheon, there was a bull god, a fertility god. Several Because bull bulls gods. are fertility symbols. Yes. Uh, there was a bull god, the bull calf, Yah. Mm-hmm. Yah as short for Yahweh. Yep. There are probably Canaanite origins to these associations between the bull imagery and Yahweh. Now, if he was right that this was a reference to the Zodiac and they were casting aside the Old Ages image, well, then you would never see these things come up in, in, in future Israel. They would be seen as idolatrous. 
but that that's that's clearly not the case. It doesn't fit with the context, and there's a much better explanation for it. He does the same thing with Christianity. He says uh, Jesus is the figure who initiates the age of Pisces, the age of the fish, and he says, well, "Look at all the fish iconography, all the fish images." that you'll find in the New Testament. Well, yeah, there's a couple, sure. especially the, since they're from Galilee and they are fishermen. <laughs> right. Um, they're a seafaring people. I think we've all seen the Jesus fish on the backs of people's cars, he says. Little do they know what it actually means. Actually, a lot of them do know what it means. <laughs> yeah. It means ichthus, which is an acronym. Jesus Christos uh, Theos uh, Dios Soter. There you go. <laughs> no one gives me credit when I'm right. Yeah, no, you're right. And and Luke, that's an acronym for. I forgot. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus Christos Theos Eos. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Right. Yes, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. But why is it a fish? Because <laughs> <laughs> because that acronym ichthus also means, means fish. fish. Yes. In in Greek. It's a, it's a clever play on words. Well, and it was a great way to di- it was a great way for Christians to let each other know that right. they were Christians, which without- is still what it's used for. Why am I seeing that on like bags of chips and cereal and stuff? If you look, and eggs, there are eggs with Jesus fish on them. Because don't go casting your bread to keep the heathen well fed. Uh-huh. Line Christian pockets instead. Wow, am we? <laughs> <laughs> There are better explanations for the fish imagery. Simpler, ones with historical backing as right. opposed to just then assuming, conspiracy talk. Then assuming this is all some elaborate uh, zodiac a, a analogy. When the moon. <laughs> I, I can't get that out of my head ever since I watched this movie. Well, that's the other claim he makes too. Yeah. He says that the uh, the end of the age is just the end of the age. The next one is Aquarius and he says uh, all these these Christians who believe in a end times and apocalyptic stuff have just uh, misunderstood this astrological analogy. Well, he's again completely ignoring an entire history of apocalyptic messianism right. in that region that goes back hundreds of years before Jesus and continues on after Jesus' death. I mean, you have a couple of facts that he can point to to weave this theory of his, but you have mountains of information that he just ignores. It compiles together things that are true with a bunch of other things that are patently false and also things that are distortions or stretching all together into one stew, which makes it fair game for then Christian apologists to say that all of it is tainted and uh, nonsense. That's right. So if a skeptic did want to know about uh, valid origins of the Bible and Christianity that are traced back to actual historical things and you know even astrology, where should this skeptic look then? Well, one place to turn would be Tim Callahan's writings. Not that they're above criticism, but I think he he does a pretty good job. And he also did an incredible job critiquing the film Zeitgeist. So he's going to join us on the show now. Tim Callahan is the author of Secret Origins of the Bible, Bible Prophecy, Failure or Fulfillment, and the religion editor for Skeptic Magazine. And if you've ever listened to our Skeptic Sunday School segments – You've definitely heard his name before. So I'm very excited to finally get a chance to talk to him in person. And here it is, Tim Callahan on Reasonable Doubts.
You begin your critique of the Zeitgeist film in an article for Skeptic Magazine by saying, perhaps the worst aspect of Peter Joseph's film Zeitgeist is that some of what it asserts is true. What were some things that you considered to be more or less accurate? Certainly uh, the argument that the Gospels are by and large fiction is a good argument and that there is some pagan material in the uh, Christ myth. In fact, it's even ancient early Christians, I should say, uh, agreed to this. If I can find it here, I've got a quote from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr's First Apology, Chapter 21, says, And when we say of the Word, who is the firstborn of God, was produced without sexual union, and that he, Jesus Christ, our teacher, was crucified and died and rose again and descended and ascended into heaven, we propound nothing different from what you already believe, considering those who you seem esteem as sons of Zeus. Uh, and he goes on and tells about all these different uh, people who uh, parallel Jesus, uh, whether it's Hermes or Asclepius or uh, Heracles or Dionysus and so on. And so, yes, uh, there's a lot of mythology. In fact, is just about everything in, in the Gospels is mythology, but Peter Joseph got uh, the wrong mythology. One of the most impressive parts of the film, and I think actually one of the most deceptive parts of the film, is where Joseph goes over this list of pagan gods uh, that he feels form the basis for the Christ myth. He mentions gods such as Horus, Attis, Krishna, Dionysus, and he points out that they have several things in common with Christ. Uh, most of them were born of a virgin, born on December 25th, uh, crucified, resurrected in some cases resurrected three days later, that they had 12 disciples. He says in the film, the fact of the matter is there are numerous saviors from different periods from all over the world which subscribe to these general characteristics. The question remains, why these attributes? Why the virgin birth on the 25th of December? Why dead for three days and then the inevitable resurrection? Why 12 disciples or followers? And he basically comes to the conclusion that this is because Jesus, like these other deities, is a solar deity. Jesus might be called the Son of God, S-U-N, rather than S-O-N. And in fact, he believes this is even the origin of the, the cross, the crucifix. He says that is uh, really the – it's the solar cross. It's a symbol for the sun, not an instrument of execution. He basically seems to make out the whole Christian story uh, to be, as he says, one elaborate astrological analogy. I would disagree strong with that. Uh, a lot of it's based on the Jewish Messianic myth, and then there were, are certain pagan elements put in it, and it varies from gospel to gospel. There are many pagan elements, but it's pretty clear that Joseph has exaggerated just how closely these pagan myths match the Christ myth. Yeah, they have greatly been exaggerated. The only uh, example of uh, 12 that could be construed to be 12 disciples uh, is that there is a picture of Horus facing uh, the 12 hours. And so there's, there's no, uh, nothing in Egyptian mythology about him having 12 disciples or being born on, uh, on the uh, 25th. The 25th of December was in the old Julian calendar, uh, the solstice, which slipped around to the 21st because of a certain imprecision that was uh, corrected by the Gregorian calendar. 
and the that was the only person who was born on that day was uh, Mithra in his guise or his, his role as Sol Invictus, meaning the unconquered sun. And it's a logical time for a sun, a solar deity, to be born because the days start getting longer from from the solstice onward. This was co-opted by the Christians probably, I think, it was in the, the 300s. It was a, a pretty late addition to Christianity to have Jesus born on the 25th. And, of course, there's nothing in the Bible about when he was born. And when it comes to the crucifixion also, um, his whole idea of the Southern Cross and the idea that Dionysus was crucified and all this. I mean, there is an icon of Dionysus on a cross, but it's post-Christian, and it probably was syncretism going the other way, mm. is that uh, it did go both ways. The, the Christ myth picked up pagan material, and when Christianity became viable, the uh, other pagans picked up Christian material. Every, every one of these dying, rising gods is given an excruciating death, but it just doesn't seem to be those. They don't seem to have been crucified. Jesus is about the only one that's been crucified. And the, the crucifix being the, the cross, uh, probably the, it was originally a T. It might have been added, made it into a cross to fit all kinds of solar symbolism. I'm not saying that that's uh, not the case. The, the cross as a solar symbol was quite ancient, and certainly that was co-opted into the idea. But the point is, is that we shouldn't always assume when there's some sort of uh, parallel or syncretism going on that it was always the other tradition informing Christianity, that this this can go both ways. Yeah, the, uh, a great example of that is the, uh, is the nativity story of Krishna in an epic written in the medieval period. It parallels the combined nativity stories are, are both Luke and Matthew. So it's unlikely that they got it from Krishna because they would have kept the whole myth, which would included the both the trek to uh, a city to pay taxes and the slaughter of the innocents and all these other things, instead of dividing up in two. So it's more likely that, uh, in that case, Krishna, who was obviously a deity long before Jesus was, in later years they picked up the Christian nativity stories. But where did the Christians originally get the nativity story? And Joseph has a theory for that too. Joseph says that the birth sequence is completely astrological. Uh, He makes a claim that the star in the east is Cirrus. He says that on December 24th, uh, Cirrus aligns with the three brightest stars in Orion's belt. And these three bright stars in ancient times were called the three kings. So there's the magi. And so that Orion's belt and Cirrus will all point to the place of the sunrise on December 25th, uh, and that's why the three kings follow the star in the east. Then getting even deeper into this astrological symbolism, he says as the days shorten approaching the winter solstice, that the solstice now comes to represent the death of the sun as, as the sun eventually reaches its lowest point in the sky. But right before the winter solstice, He says a curious thing happens. The sun stops moving south, at least perceivably, for about three days. During this three-day pause, the sun resides in the vicinity of the constellation called the Southern Cross. And then Joseph says, after this time on December 25th, the sun moves one degree, this time north, foreshadowing longer days, warmth and spring. And thus it was said that the sun died on the cross, was dead for three days, only to be resurrected or born again. But you pointed out in your Skeptic Magazine article, after talking to 
real astronomers about this, that there are several inaccuracies here. First of all, Sirius doesn't really line up with Orion's belt. And that in historical times, the sun has never really been in the Southern Cross. In fact, the Southern Cross is barely even visible in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, the Southern Cross, I think, might have been just visible in certain areas of the Northern Hemisphere, mostly not. But let's start with the Three Kings. If you look at the nativity stories in the New Testament, you'll find there's two of them. And you know the nativity that's uh, the, the subject of Christ- Christmas patents and such uh, combines Luke's story and Matthew's story. But if you take them separately, you find they disagree on every particular. Right, the Matthew. traditional Christmas story that yeah. we, we are aware of. From... Yeah, it's a mix of the two. Yeah. So uh, uh, there is, in, in Matthew's story, there's no Roman census, no uh, trek from, from Galilee to Bethlehem, no being born uh, in a stable, nothing, nothing like that. No story of the wise men coming in Luke. And in the story of Matthew, it doesn't say there were three kings or even three wise men. It just says magi came from the east, saying that we followed the star. And uh, there's been all kinds of people trying to figure out what the star was. It's an alignment of two planets in a given constellation, and they all come up with different ones, and never, nothing quite fits. Also, the people tried to say, oh, there was a nova at that time, but there's no nova being reported. And people did observe the skies in those days. But basically, the idea of a star rising has to do with a king being born. And uh, the Matthaean account is that Magi came from the East, which would be, would be the Parthian Empire. This is a political myth. Wise men come from the Parthian Empire and hail Jesus as a king. The Parthians, at a time when the Romans were having a civil war, invaded uh, the East. Uh, this is when they were, the war was between people following Cassius and Brutus and on one side and Mark Antony on the other. And they set up the last Maccabean king, tender of a fellow by the name of Aristobulus, I believe. They sent him back on the throne, but the Romans came in, drove the Parthians back out, and executed the last of the Maccabeans. So it's a political statement. Parthians are coming to recognize this guy as the king, He's the guy who's going to throw out the Romans. That's the implication there. And uh, the only reason we think of them as three is because there are three gifts. And the gifts uh, are interesting because they are also a political myth. Uh, When the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon in the Old Testament, she brings him all, all kinds of great gifts. And where does she come from? She comes from the southern end of the Red Sea, which is where frankincense and myrrh come from. And uh, that's where they are brought up. In fact, they were brought up on a trade route called the incense route. So they bring gifts that are brought, would be brought by the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. Frankincense, myrrh, and, of course, gold. And so there's, there's no three kings. They're not, they're not kings in the first place. There's not three of them. This is all uh, extra-biblical elaboration that has come out of the uh, traditions that grew up around the nativity. Which this should really give us a clue as to what his methods really are. Peter Joseph just seems to be taking a bunch of scattered ideas and trying to connect the dots. He doesn't even seem to be really consulting the biblical texts themselves. This is also seen in his alleging that the 12 disciples, that they number in 12 because there are 12 signs of the zodiac. 
and there's also 12, 12 tribes of Israel. Now, whether the tribes of Israel themselves were had any zodiacal reference, I, I kind of doubt because it probably is based on 12 months of the year that uh, that they uh, constructed a 12-tribe uh, confederacy, each tribe maintaining the sanctuary for one month of the year. And in fact, Simeon may not actually even be a tribe. It might have been a, just a region of Judah that was given the status of a tribe for purposes of supporting the, the sanctuary. So there's a tribe for every month, and then there's a 13th tribe, the tribe of Levi, which is a priestly tribe maintained by the others. So, you know, that's very tenuous to, uh, based on the Zodiac. Zodiac was probably more based on the month anyway. Now, one thing they bring up, which, which I think may have a little bit of truth to this, is that he says, you know, there really isn't much evidence for historical Jesus outside of the biblical record at all. Yeah, he does have a point there. Um, about the only contemporary or near-contemporary non-biblical mention of Jesus is <clears throat> Josephus. Uh, he mentions the, the execution of James, who he says was the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. And uh, the word he uses for called is the Greek verb lego, which means to speak. So it's Jesus who was spoken of as the Christ, Jesus the alleged Christ. Some people have argued that who was, co- was called the Christ has been added later by a, a, you know, an interpolation by a later editor, so that might not be true. But the only thing in the Gospels we can take for certain would be that uh, Jesus was a Messianic pretender and that he might have been uh, put to death as his own complicity since he believed he was going to rise again. There are indirect arguments that there is a, was a basic a guy who was at the core of this, uh, a, a Jesus. I don't believe he walked on water, raised the dead, or fed thousands of people with a few fish or anything like that. But one of the arguments or one of the criteria of arguing is, is the criterion of difficulty. That is, if people are making somebody up out of whole cloth, they will not introduce difficulties into them. So we have a prophecy, Micah 5.2, that's says that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. A reasonable idea, considering that Bethlehem is the hometown of, of David, and so the Davidic king who's going to redeem Israel would be born there. So if, you, if you're making up out of whole cloth, you simply say, he came from, you know, he came from right. Bethlehem. That's fine. Why did but, they go so out of their way to reconcile these, these facts from his life? Yeah, they, they have this, so they've got this really convoluted way, the two different convoluted ways in the Nativity stories of getting Jesus born in Bethlehem but growing up in Galilee. One, you know, uh, Luke says, well, they had to go through this census, census the empire-wide census. They had to go to their hometown, which is a bit ridiculous. And also, there was a local census when Judea was taken over after the death of Herod the Great. Uh, they deposed his son, Herod Archelaus, and began to administer it directly. And at that time, they instituted a census for taxes, but uh, that didn't affect Galilee, which was under the rule of Herod Antipas, so he wouldn't have had to have gone. So that doesn't work. And uh, then there's the slaughter of the innocents, which was taken straight out of uh, Pharaoh slaughtering the male children in Exodus. So again, that's an old uh, myth. We don't have any any example, any real uh, indication that Herod ever did anything like that. He did plenty of terrible things, but this one uh, doesn't seem to be the truth. So we have the, all these convoluted explanations, which indicate that they were stuck with a guy who came from Galilee when he should have been born in Bethlehem. So they had to make all this, 
you know, they had to, to work around all of that. So I'm saying that if he if he didn't exist, if they just made him up, they wouldn't have had to have done that. Another reason I've always thought was a this might be a good reason for believing that Jesus was a real figure is is the the prophecies that they pull from the Hebrew Bible to try to say, hey, look, Jesus is a fulfillment of this. It, it seems like they, they're really reaching with a yeah. lot of those uh, prophecies where if you just made him up, you could tailor him to whatever prophecy you wanted. Yeah, they could. Of course, he could still not exist and they could ransack the, uh, the Old Testament for prophecies. But uh, That's true. I just think they would have done a better job of it. Yeah, <laughs> quite true. What about the uh, the criteria of embarrassment also used by New Testament scholars? Yeah, they uh, that's I would say less effective than the criteria of difficulty. But criteria of embarrassment uh, is the when they mentioned uh, Tacitus uh, talking about these people following somebody who was crucified uh, by under Pilate. That you know you don't uh, say oh we're our our leader was a condemned criminal. So that's the uh, the idea of that. Of course, if it's a a group that's opposing Rome, they might glory in the fact that uh, he was somebody who was put to death as a criminal. But, uh, you know, it's it's very indirect evidence, and, you know, it's I would not be utterly devastated to learn that uh, that Jesus didn't exist. It's quite possible he didn't exist. I think there was a real guy, and that all this myth was added to him, and, uh, you know, of course, the, the Christian religion uh, is largely the invention of uh, Paul. So. Yeah, I think so too. But that's but that's a controversial claim, and and it's not easy to prove. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of scholarship, and um, it's not going to fit well with any kind of simple conspiracy theory. And that really does seem to be his goal. He wants to prove this is all one big plot by the Roman government to use religion to control people. It's just a religious conspiracy theory. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the other two parts of the film are conspiracy theories, too. Uh, I think we should mention something. Mm-hmm. Part one of, of Zeitgeist is really based almost entirely on the writings of a uh, lady by the name of Dorothy Murdoch, who uh, goes by the name of Acharya S., and uh, she wrote a, a book called The uh, Christ Conspiracy and so on, and that's what, uh, where he gets his real stuff. When I... When I wrote my article on Zeitgeist, I got a rather uh, thundering uh, critique from her about how sloppy my my scholarship was, and so on. And, then, <laughs> and so I've I rebutted her and some on my website and various other things. I took her fairly seriously, but it appears that she's really got a very small following, and she based her stuff on um, some kind of idiosyncratic 19th century writings. They were, they were by people who were rather brilliant, but who invented a bit along mm-hmm. the way. So that's why there's a mix of, of uh, truth and fiction in there and, and elaborations where they should not have been. And that's the point, really. Uh, There's no problem with challenging Christian origins, and there's a lot of information that does so. But the important thing is that we do this with respectable, proven methods of academic scholarship. And if we are weaving conspiracy theories, that gives the apologists fodder for attacking us. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's, I think, one of the the worst problems is that... uh and I've found a number of fundamentalist websites where they have really uh, lit into Acharya S, and they can pretty easily point out a lot of weaknesses. The, the main weakness is that the, the complete disregard of messianic myth, 
uh, and the fact that uh, a lot of the mythology of the Gospels comes from Judaism. I, the, uh, mm-hmm. the miracle stories, all of Jesus' miracle stories are based, uh, well, a few that are based on, on pagan things, notably turning water into wine in the Gospel of John is uh, based on uh, something done by, the, by Dionysus in the Temple in Elis, where miraculously they would put jugs of water in the, or amphorae of water in the temple, and they would lock it up, and then in the morning, next morning they'd open it up, and lo and behold, there was wine there. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's a pagan one, but mostly his miracles are elaborations of miracles done by Elijah, Elisha, and Moses. And so uh, ignoring that, I think, is, is one of the great flaws here, that there was a mythology ready-made within Judaism. You didn't have to go too far for too much pagan mythology. Well, Tim Callahan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And where can our listeners learn more about your books and your articles? I have a website, timcallahan.info. Tim Callahan is one word, dot info, I-N-F-O. There's also a forum attached to that. Excellent. And I would definitely, once again, I would definitely recommend uh, both of Tim Callahan's books, uh, Bible Prophecy and The Secret Origins of the Bible, uh, both very excellent books, I believe, from uh, Millennium Press. Right. That's uh, the book publishing arm of the Skeptic Magazine. And uh, also, uh, on May 1st, I will be uh, debating uh, Dr. Hugh Roth in uh, a church in Fullerton. I don't have... Ah, reasons to believe. Reasons Ross. to believe, yes. He's and a favorite he, on the show. Oh, he is. Great. Is he still uh, peddling his probabilities of prophecy being fulfilled? Uh, apparently so, because I'm going to be debating him on uh, the subject of biblical prophecy. One thing I, I do like about Hugh Roth is he is, uh, I believe, a man of integrity and uh, mm-hmm. a decent soul. You know, some people uh, on that line I've I'm really doubtful about, well, like Hal Lindsey, I think he was just in it for the prophet. Right. Not, not P-R-O-P-H-E-T, but P-R-O-F-I-T. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, so I'll be debating him uh, in, uh, in Fullerton uh, on May 1st. I'll try to put uh, information on where it is when I find out, you know, when the, the time of day and all that on my website. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for having me. It, Yes, well, thank you, and uh, and good luck on your upcoming debate. Thank you very much. All right, and now it's time to turn once again to our shit list. This is where we heap scorn on those who need it and occasionally give praise and props to others, although usually uh, lately it's been a lot more shit than props. Maybe it's just me. I was feeling cranky about the um, about some of the missionaries that have taken advantage of, shall we say, the the crisis in Haiti after the earthquake. Mm. Not, the kidnappers for Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is we should say at the beginning that not all of them are like this, and in fact, many of the agencies probably a good bifurcation would be that the ones that were in there before the earthquake are tend to be the more responsible ones that have actual roots in that culture and have been there, you know, slogging away for a right. long time. Mm-hmm. But that that seems to be the case. Yeah. But the ones that see that that the ones that seem to have come in after the fact swooped in after the crisis. Uh, if, for example, the group in Idaho, it looks like the uh, head of that group, Laura Silsby, was the one who came in. Most people are familiar with uh, her story where she's uh, tried to spirit away a bunch of 
Just uh, run them across the border to uh, the Dominican to Republic. To the Dominican Republic. Yeah. A mixture of orphans uh, and non-orphans. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was paperwork outrageous. Paperwork or documentation. Just of, grabbing children off the street. And yeah. so the, many of the people in the group now complain that they were duped basically or they thought – they assumed that she had the, the T's crossed and everything documented right. for the kids, the papers, which was not the case. Uh, but it turns out you know, the more digging that has been done in her background, the more it's been determined that she has you – know, she has financial – Problems back right. at home, and uh, you know a lot of people have come out of the woodwork saying she owed money. And she's basically trying to sell these children. I mean, it's adoption and not slavery, so at least there's that. There was an article by or an opinion piece in the New York Times by Timothy Egan called mm-hmm. "The Missionary Impulse," where he bronzed the focus to a lot of these people that uh, practice a form of cultural imperialism. Essentially, it's to say we know it's best by coming in and saying let's Christianize these pagan youth. And he gives the analogy of what would happen if after let's say Hurricane Katrina. Or some disaster, a bunch of voodoo priests show up in New Orleans to take away the children of, you know, of Louisiana back to to be safe and save their souls right. at the same time. Right, we there would, would be complete out. outrage. Yep, and, and yet we think it's perfectly natural in this country to well, let's um, let's do good by helping the kids out, which is fine. But then also there's this hint of well, they need to be Christianized, and we know what's best right. for them. They're and, not saved. They're all Roman Catholic. <laughs> My impression is that many of the adoptions that take place now with things like people going to uh, Asia or China to get a lot of the uh, the female babies that are unwanted there, mm-hmm. a lot of those uh, seem to be uh, disproportionately from families that, you know, if they might not state this, they often, I think the undercurrent is at least this kid didn't grow up to be some Chinese we need to dirt, save this, dirt worshiping animist yep. or something that this we saved. This poor heathen them. child. So yep. provide them with a with a house in a nice country. Fine, that's great. But but one wonders who's being served by this when the other motivation is to save another soul for Jesus. You know, in addition to helping the kid. I, I'm anticipating we're going to get hate mail for for that comment. I I think I think you're right though. We're clarifying here that not everybody who goes out and adopts uh, or all these adoption oh, agencies course, are like this. But it is you, there is the phenomenon and you see it a lot here in West Michigan, especially mm-hmm. of these missionary families. And by missionary families, I, I don't mean that they're going out into the mission field. It's more like they're bringing the mission field to them. Right. They've their quiver full is actually of other people's children yep. Uh, yep. who they've properly indoctrinated and shared. You no, know, the good br- news bring on the hate mail. Bring it on. I love it. But here's my point. Here's a little a mental test. Here's let's perform a thought experiment. What if they could have the kid, but for some magical reason, we're only able to raise the kid and help them if the kid was raised in whatever local religion they came from and not Christianity? Would they still do it? Do you think? Would they still, let's say, I adopt a kid from China or Haiti or right. whatever, but I had to gotta then raise say, them voodoo. But but say you know you need to go uh, learn your own culture. And then make up your mind later on, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I don't think you'd get many takers with mm. that modification. It's kind of like the Catholic Church in D.C. when we, when they mm-hmm. said that you, they can't discriminate against gays. Well, well yes. then we won't provide any services then. Right. right. Who's being served by that? If your charity was based on doing it my way or the highway, bring All it right. on. Bring yeah. it on. Uh, Love it. All right. Well, until next time, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Zazzle. Buy a nice T-shirt if you're so inclined at slash doubtcast. Um, And that's all for this week. And bring it on. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. 
catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.